welcome to the Flying Solo Podcast, a show for those going it alone in business. If you're working solo or have dreams of starting up, you'll find support, inspiration and advice at Australia's largest and liveliest small business community. Find us at flyingsolo.com.au or join us on Facebook. Here's your host, Robert Gerrish. Hello and welcome to another Flying Solo podcast. Thanks to your terrific support, we're now getting well over 5,000 listeners a month. And surely that's good, isn't it? I really don't know. It seems to me that it's a bit like money. No matter how much you've got, it's never quite enough. Well, thankfully, today we're going to change all that, or at least my guest, Robert Holmes, is, as we tackle the psychology of money more in a few moments. If you're listening via iTunes, please leave a short review of the show. And don't forget, we welcome comments and discussion on Facebook or via the page this show has on Flying Solo. Okay, money, money, money. Why we love it, hate it, and are confused by it. My guest is one of Flying Solo's fabulous contributors, Robert Holmes. He's an expert in the science of human behavior, specializing in applying neuroscience to deep personal change work high performance and goal attainment. Robert is a keynote speaker, the Director of Marketing for the International Coach Federation Australasia, a research fellow at the Neuro Coaching Institute, an international journalist, photographer and author. Welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. G'day, Robert. Good to be talking again. It is indeed good to be talking. And look, on the psychology of money, I'm just pleased that we haven't got any cameras here so people can't see me blush and look embarrassed because, <laughs> I don't know, I, I still don't love the topic of money. But look, let's. so the, the psychology of money, why we love it, hate it, and confused by it, can't wait to get going. Perhaps as a starting point, I should just throw one at you and just say, in your experience, why does the subject of money cause so much havoc and turmoil to so many solo and small businesses? Well, I think it's because of the relationship we have with money. If we can think about it like a person, we, we it's the awkward uncle. We don't know what to do with it. You know, it walks into the room and it's Christmas and everyone kind of looks at the ground. Um, the people who do get it sorted out, though, they seem to really do well and they prosper. And we look at them and we think, oh, wow, I'd really want to be like that. But it, uh, a, lot, a lot of the issues going on in our heads. Mm. So I, I guess what we're going to look at then is, is you're going to show us how to embrace the awkward uncle. Yes, and, yeah. and a little bit around why he behaves the way he does. Okay, brilliant. All right, let's go. So I, I think that's a, that's a great um, sort of analogy to start with, and I, I can totally relate to that. And yes, I can think of the awkward uncle. So what, what, what are the first steps? What do we do? Well, uh, one of the one of the things I want to, I guess, point out. I don't know if you remember back to December two thousand thirteen, but there was for the first time in the world a person who pleaded affluenza as their um, way of trying to get out of uh, a murder conviction. So, um, do, do you remember? I don't, that I don't, I don't recall that. No, no. no so it was a, there was a ten year old kid who drove a car and he killed four people in Texas, oh. and um, his psychologist uh, Dick Miller pleaded affluenza, which meant, you know, the kid is too rich to understand what the hell's going on. And um, and the, the dumb thing about it is he got away with it. So uh, he, he got 10 years probation and therapy. My right? and he, goodness. He killed four people. So uh, so here we, it's kind of an idea of just how extremely bad our relationship with money can get. Now, you mm. and I don't have a relationship with money quite like that. No. 
I don't but, think I've ever suffered from affluenza. <laughs> but the, the underlying kind of idea was that he had grown up rich and didn't understand how the world worked. And, for, you know, it, only in Texas, mm. uh, he, he got away with it. But unfortunately, that, that plea has been repeated again and again since this happened with the 10-year-old boy. And they think he got clemency because of his age. But mm. the, the, the problem is we, we don't quite think that money's real and and the truth of it is it, it's not real um have you heard the term fiat money before fiat money fiat as in f-i-a-t as in the italian car maker yes <laughs> no a second re- <laughs> so, second revelation we're only four minutes in so what's so, that then so fiat money means uh money that doesn't really exist money that's not backed by anything so we were on the gold standard before and now we've had that removed and, and money literally is just paper now and and so it's kind of a promise a mm. promissory note that you know i give you this piece of paper and you believe that it's worth something and then you give it to the next guy so wh- why is it called fiat money well fiat just means empty oh, oh okay, okay okay so so money money now is literally just paper right and and so because of that our brains kind of know that and we treat it as though it's not real. And that, that gets us in a cup, many different forms of trouble mm. because um, – and it's, it, I think it's made worse by the fact that actual cash – I don't know if you carry actual cash around or not. Less, um, I and, less and less. Yeah, less and less. I, I don't at all. So mm. I carry uh, plastic cards and that makes money even less real. It's, mm. it's even more invisible. And, because our, and so our, bra- our brains are kind of struggling with – us doing all this stuff with something that's not real. And so, therefore, there's this disconnect between what we know to be true and what we feel mm. to be true. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. And look, and I'm trying to get my head around that. And I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. But I remember, you know, last week I handed over, it wasn't cash, it was, it was my piece of plastic for a new television set that my son has just been hounding me about for, you know, the last 10 years about time we had a TV that looked at least like it was built this century or something. Um, And I I handed over um, a lot of money. And so I felt something. (laughs) I felt something then. I noticed something. So it's not real, but the, the emotion around it is real. Well, absolutely it is. So, so the thing that you're experiencing and that I do too when I you know, go to pay for the car or go to pay for mm. anything that's expensive is a thing called loss aversion. So um, I can't remember when it was, back in 1984 or earlier, a couple of psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, did a study around how we, how we handle losing stuff. So if I gave you a coffee mug um, and then I gave you a, a pen or I gave someone else a pen and they had the same financial value, would you be willing to swap it with one another now that you've taken hold of it? Hmm. Uh, if I give you a television and you give me some money, you, f- you feel loss aversion. You feel this sense of, of uh, having having money going away. And, and what they discovered, actually this wasn't in 84 because they didn't have fMRI machines back then, nice. about fif- 15 years later, they stuck people in fMRI machines to do that. And what they noticed was the pain centers in the brain fired off when people were asked to use uh, an FPOS card when they were in the scanner, when they were asked to scan plastic. The pain centers fire off, just like being punched in the arm. So even not not knowing whether those people that are in the scanner are 
were you know wealthy or whatever you're saying just the mere sort of fact that they were they were about to go through some kind of financial um transaction loss, loss yes. um cause cause a, a degree of pain yeah absolutely it does hmm. so so on the one hand we have this thing that's kind of ghost like and not real and so it doesn't have the feelings attached to it that we should be associating with money and that leads to debt and credit card spending that we can't afford and so forth hmm. but on the other hand we also experience this um paradoxically this pain this emotional pain it's not emotional actually it's intellectual pain okay and the other thing that happens is that having handed you that coffee mug you now place value on the coffee mug far beyond what it's actually worth because i've got so a sort of personal attachment to it or something yeah Absolutely, which okay. is which is attachment theory. So um, I hand you the coffee mug and it's only worth $10, but now you won't sell it for anything less than 20 hmm. And that was uh, Kahneman went on and did some more research with a couple of other dudes you know, back in the 90s, and they found that we just because we own it, we now feel attached to it because it's physical and real. And so that television that you've just bought – will feel more valuable to you if I walked up to you and said, could I have it, you know, could I buy it, could we take it down off your wall? It would be really, really unlikely that you would sell it to me for the same price you bought it for hmm. because it's yours. And so we have this kind of, <laughs> it's not caveman ownership, but it is like, you know, no, this is mine. This is my protective property now. So, Well, um, just to blow your theory out, between you and me, you could buy it now and I, I, I'll let it go because I haven't opened it yet and it's it's the whole <laughs> thought of setting it up frustrates me so <laughs> so I'll, I'll do your deal we'll wait a lot at the end of the call though. <laughs> no sorry i'm gonna throw you off track if i'm not but, um, but do you i mean have you had an experience where uh say you bought a car you know and you liked it and then it came time to trade it in and the guy offered you probably actually what it was worth but you felt like no it's of worth course. More than yeah definitely definitely yeah but so what you're saying then then is is that um, you know, from the, the the scan that was done that showed these the things that are going on in our brain receptors, if that's the right word, and the feelings that we have around it. I mean, it's little wonder that we're all in such a mess about money. But you know, what do we what do we do about it? Because it's here to stay, isn't it? We haven't got any other options at the moment. Well, no, well, no, we don't. But um, I think a, a couple of things are really interesting. If we know that we have. Um, that money's dangerous because it's it's fiat money, and it's and it's dangerous because our brains don't do things, our brains don't do pure rational calculations very well either. Uh, for example, when compound interest was explained to me, and I'm an, I've got an accounting degree, yeah. uh, and I was down at the bank and they were talking to me about you know do you want a, pro, a personal loan or a credit card, and I was sitting there listening to the interest rates and trying to really trying to understand what they were saying. I I. Honestly, inside my head, I was kind of a a rat on a spinning wheel, just mm. going round and round and round because it I couldn't connect with it. Right, so I just said, "Could you just draw me on a on a page? Could you just show me what that looks like in terms of repayments? Okay, this versus this. Mm. Okay, great. I'll I'll have the personal loan. Thanks, because our brains don't do compound uh, interest. They don't do um, either in terms of what we have to pay or in terms of what we receive. We don't do the future value of money very well. So the dollar you have today is worth more than the dollar tomorrow because of inflation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can hear that and you can say that and we can give mental assent to it, but it's not real. 
to us. Oh, okay. And so and so we do very very badly when if I, you know we walk up to a, a a machine at the RSL and we take five bucks and we you know go to put the money in, we kind of treat that like a game. We kind of treat it like it's fun. Mm. But we can't calculate how improbable the odds are that we'll win anything. In fact, because we're emotional beings, we can't do, we can't stand there and do the maths. I think knowing that is really helpful to start with. Okay. Know, that's kind of, right. kind of the so, first. Yeah. So what I'm getting from you is is I uh, you, what I what I'm sort of hearing you saying to us all is that first point is hey just accept that this money is an odd odd uncle. Yes. And, you know, is and so accept it is odd. So it's okay. So I'm in the room. I'm looking at the guy. I'm thinking, you are odd. You're weird. You're weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm dying to see where you're going to take us next. Well, so now we look at the now we look at the uncle, and he's odd, and he's different. And he's got a big nose, and maybe one shoulders looking a bit odd. We immediately feel less compassionate towards him. So we we are likely to dehumanize. We are likely to uh, think of him as different to us, and we are likely uh, to think of people who like him as different to us. Hmm. So one of the one of the studies that they did at UC Berkeley, which is you know a re- UC Berkeley is a really interesting kind of um, university college campus. It's down by the ocean. It's in California. It's you know this incredible kind of beautiful place with palm trees and everything. And you can go stand on the street corner. And spend five minutes, and I've, I've done this. You stand on the street corner, and there there are all sorts of cars go past, including Lamborghinis and Ferraris. And it what they ran a couple of really interesting studies about two things: whether or not the drivers of different cars were likely to stop for a kid crossing the foot, you know, like the zebra yep. crossing, yep. and whether or not the people uh, who owned those vehicles were more or less likely to obey the traffic laws. In the city, so so they stood. They got people from UC Berkeley and they put them all over the town to watch rich and poor cars. And what they noticed was and stand out in front of them and stand out in front of them, walk out in front of them. (laughs) Good luck with that. And and people whose vehicles now in America, remember their economy is different. So if you've got a car that's worth over thirty thousand dollars, that's you know that's really saying something here in Australia. (laughs) That's kind of the normal car cost, but. So they kind of drew a line in the sand and said, any cars over 30 grand, you're rich. And right. and what they watched was um, those people were five times less likely to stop for people walking over zebra crossings and four times less likely. So in other words, 200% more likely to break the law. Drive through a stop sign, drive through a red light, drive faster than the speed limit, you name it. Wow. So just by having a degree of wealth, yep. you're, you're saying that they are less considerate, they're, they're kind of – they're not so not such nice people to have in the community. That's what that, that's what that's correct. Showing. Correct, and that that person is us. You see, so the more we hang around this uncle, and the more we kind of look at him and think you're different, you're weird, you're strange, the weirder and stranger we become. And we need to be aware that um, that process is very unconscious, unless someone else is in the car with you. Which is, you know, here comes salvation. Take oh, okay. somebody. Take somebody shopping with you and you will behave normally. Take somebody driving with you and you're more likely to behave normally. And if you start misbehaving, give that person permission to call you on it. And they'll say, you know, hey, what speed are we doing? Especially like my kids love doing that to me because they sit in the back of the car and they look at my speedo. Mm. Hey, Dad, you know, how fast are we going now? And, and that makes you uh, more aware of who you are, 
what you're doing, how you're driving, and, and suddenly you get your normal moral compass back. So, okay, so what am I, what do I take out from that, though, with, a, with regard to my relationship with money? You're saying I, I need to have a buddy or I need to sort of create a, uh, a mental passenger in my mind or something? How do, I, how do we use that? You, you, can, you can do both of those things. So you can, if you, A, become aware that people become less compassionate the more wealthy they become, and in Australia most of us would classify as wealthy, realise that money has that kind of effect on us, making us less empathetic, less... Uh, you know, likely to be responsive to others' needs. Mm. And and this is true. This has been replicated from, you know, uh, Jamil Zaki from Harvard has replicated this with giving money to the poor, you know, people on the street side, Salvation Army. The, the more money we carry, the less likely we are to, to be generous and donate. Um, you know, so these studies have been replicated a number of different times. Being mm. aware of that is one thing. And then making other people aware is another thing, and having a mental buddy along with us. So when we are walking through, and this happened to me literally last week, I was up in Canberra turning up at the Salvation, you know, there's a Salvation Army guy sitting at the door. I walked past him the first time and said to myself, you know what, that's, exa that's exactly what the studies have shown, Holmesy. So, you know, you know, go shopping, turn around, and on your way back to the car park, make sure you see that guy. I, you know, unfortunately, he'd gone by the time I came back, or fortunately. Right. But, but but you, but to to know that I'm behaving that way, and then to say, okay, is this the relationship with money that I want? And it isn't. I'm sure most of our listeners yeah, okay. would say, no, no, no. I want to be a compassionate person. I want to be a generous person. So knowing and then being accountable to self or being accountable to others. I've got I've got a friend who's got a, a kind of a sticker or a post-it note on the dashboard of, of their car. And they've, you know, said, remember to be generous. So mm. you can do you can do any number of things to assist yourself to to um, you know come come back in on the. Okay, so what what you're saying there then is, and again, let me I'm going to let me know, know if yeah, let, well, let me know if we're flogging the uncle uh, analogy to death too much. But <laughs> so what you're saying is we've got to we've kind of got to accept the guy a little bit more. Uh, not have this sort of sense of antagonism towards him, but just saying, okay, well, yeah, you might be have a big nose and be a bit lopsided and all of those things, but I'm the kind of person that that is nice to any kind of person. So it's it's this acceptance and just I'm going to be I'm going to be good with this person. I'm going to be generous with this person. Um, but then if, to someone listening who might say, well, okay, Robert, yes, technically. Um, as a nation, we're full of wealthy people, and technically, maybe I'm listening to this podcast, and and yes, I'm wealthy, but it sure as hell doesn't feel like that. You know, when I get <laughs> when I get my uh, bass demands or the next phone bill to come in, you know, wealth seems to elude me. So, sure. so how do where do we where do we kind of go to now? With I like like the thought of having a note on my dashboard that says be generous. I love the thought of. Um, of increasingly being the kind of person that stops at crossings and and helps people, I can see all those things are, are good and very positive. But then, is there a do we 
you know, do we get a payoff for this? Do we does, does, do we get more money? There's more. <laughs> you know, how does it work? Well, one of the one of the really interesting uh, studies on money and and on making wealth. And I and I hear you know I hear you. Uh, we we don't feel like we're very wealthy in uh, Australia, and we feel like oh here's tax time. I just saw my accountant yesterday, and you know we had a discussion about how much tax I was going to have to pay and so forth. I acknowledge that's true, but a very interesting study was done by uh, UCSF, uh, Michael Krauss, on the way people measure wealth. And so they say to themselves, I am going to be rich when? And they started this study in Uganda. They worked their way across the Asia-Pacific and ended up in uh, England and then Canada and then America. Right. And the results went a a little bit like this. Um, Mr. Uganda poor person living on the street with no leg, um, uh, when would you be rich? And he said, well, uh, when I when I get two US dollars a day, uh, and how much are you earning now? I'm, I'm earning one. Oh, right. Excellent. Thank you. Off we go to Nairobi. Um, Mr. Owner of Taxi, how, how much uh, will you need to earn to be rich? Well, I'm earning uh, Four thousand US dollars a year now, so I suppose I will be rich when I earn eight. Oh, that's excellent! And across we go to India, and across we go to, and and lo and behold, the man with a hundred thousand dollars salary will have made it when he earns two hundred thousand dollars. The woman who's earning two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year will be rich when she makes half a million. The man with four million will be rich when he finally gets eight. The man with one hundred fifty million will finally be rich when he gets three. Hang on, hang on. I've worked. I'm not an accountant, but I've worked out the maths here. You're Amazing. <laughs> impressive, aren't I? So they they're doubling it every time. Yes, they are. Right. So the so the moral of the story is you will never be rich in your own mind. Oh, man, you've just ruined my day. No, you, okay. will, <laughs> you will never be rich because oh. of the relationship we have with this stuff. Yeah, okay. No, okay. I like this. All right, fine, fine. So where to, where to next? I'm guessing that there's that as a as a race, you know, we're not that crash hot with with our relationship, and I, I'm hearing some good strategies that can change that i'm hearing some good stories and research that's making me realize just how silly we all are with it so how do we then what you know kind of going forwards how do we improve it then what do we do Great, great, great. So um, ages ago, and I'm, I'm fairly sure R.G. Latorno is dead, but ages ago, the man who in- invented the you know, Caterpillar, uh, Cat Diesel, and mm. uh, offshore oil rigs, um, he, noticed, he noticed a funny thing about himself. Now, this man became incredibly wealthy, but before he became incredibly wealthy, he realized that he was becoming less and less uh, compassionate. He uh, noticed in his own behaviour that he had started forgetting people's names, that he uh, wasn't looking at people at cocktail parties, that he was incredibly busy and um, powerful and becoming more and more powerful. And so what he did to limit his own propensity to do the things that we've been talking about was he capped his own salary. He said to himself, uh, what does a man like me need to live on? 
I mean, need. Need is a very yep. funny thing. But yep. what does a man like me need to live on? And he capped his salary. I forget what exactly it was, but it was something like 80000 US dollars a year, okay. which in those days was quite a lot of money. Hmm. And uh, I think he topped out at $2.5 billion uh, in terms of his wealth, but he lived to the end of his days on the salary that he capped himself at. He bought a house, paid it off, and lived that way. Another guy, C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard of him, Oxford mm-hmm. professor. He did the same thing. So he set his he, he set his own salary at thirty thousand pounds, and he lived in a stone cottage, and um, drank at the pub where, uh, who's the bloke who invented Gandalf and uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, um, Tolkien. Tolkien. So he and Tolkien would share a beer at the same pub on a Friday. Uh, the Inklings, I think they call themselves. Oh, and he lived in that stone cottage and he set his salary at 30000 even though his Oxford salary, I think, topped out at £95,000. Hmm. He capped it and said, everything else I'm going to do, you know, X, Y, Z with it. So, you, you know, you decide. Give it to your kids, uh, you know, put it in a bank, put it in your superannuation fund, whatever you need. But he capped his salary. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to do that, but... It was kind of an approach to just say, how how can I put a limit on my own perceived needs hmm. and then live within those needs and, and then do whatever it is I choose to do with the rest? Uh, some of us may not feel like we've actually reached that, you know, that capacity. It may be, and, and I, you know, I resonate with the comment that you made before. I don't feel like I've reached that, the salary that I actually need. So... Let me now set that. Let me figure it, you know, do some maths, you know, back of the postcard kind of thing and actually decide what kind of a salary I deserve, quote unquote. Yep. And then somehow limit that, cap it, stop it, because our our propensity is to just keep increasing that number. And, of course, you know, here yeah, in okay. Australia, we may need to increase it by 5% a year or something. Sure. but. We don't need to, you know, increase it by 100% every couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Look, I, I hear that. And I, I remember I was listening to um, an interview over the weekend and I, there was um, some talk there about, you know, the, the happiness topic and uh, and it, wealth and its uh, relation to happiness and that there was, there was a level, I think it was $78,000 in the US or something, where it was shown that that's the kind of optimum level um, to, for of those, they, they studied a whole lot of people that were were happy and content with their lot, and yeah. that that seemed to be the cap. And if you people earned more than that, um, were less happy, became increasingly less happy, and those below that um, were kind of you know still somewhat in pursuit. So that that notion of capping, I, I can see that's a very that's a very good thing. And as you say, you can then. You know, decide if you're if you're generating more where to put that, but you live your life at the level you want to live it. So, are you saying yeah. then? Is, do you think a loss of this sort of disharmony um, with money is is because we're just not um, not accepting that what we've got is enough? Is it is it is it this kind of constant pursuit of more that is causing this this ill ease all the time? Yes, yes. And I, I read those same studies and that you're absolutely right. You got the numbers right. And, and that's, um, I, I forget what the Australian number is, though, but it's higher than that. Mm. Uh, it is that and it is also a, um, a chemical addiction. 
there is actually a substance addiction, addiction going on inside us. Money itself is not a drug, but the pursuit of money is. Hmm. Um, wealth is not a drug and, and stuff. Greed is not even a drug. But the pursuit of those things is highly addictive because of the neurochemicals that are, are running around our brain, the, the dopamine and serotonin systems that are running. The, the, they can become as addictive as cocaine. So wow. what we need to what we need to do is just sort of realize that we're on that treadmill. I don't mean the you know rat race treadmill. Mm. It, it's the pursuit of stuff treadmill, and say, oh, it's just a big game, right? And I'm hooked. Okay, feeling like I need to win, right? If I can get off that treadmill, I'm as fr- you know you're free to be as rich as you like, but mm. not if. Not if you're running it like a cocaine addict. No, no, no. I I, I get that. You'll never get off and you'll never be happy. So as we approach that kind of, you know, optimal limit, is it 90, is it 100,000, whatever the number is in Australia, we could be happy there. We could be happy at 150. We might might be happy with, you know, 35,000. Who knows? But... But I think it's the, it's the, you know, running after that thing that kind of trips that loop in our brain. I, well, I don't think it, there's you know, research from the University of Utah, Utah shows us that, that we get tripped up by that kind of addictive nature of this, of this chemical. And food is the same, incidentally. A lot mm. of food, carbohydrates and so forth, but that's you know, a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same system that's getting accessed in our brain. So I don't know if we you know, here listening to the podcast say, oh, need to be treating ourselves like a drug addict. I don't know if you're addicted or I'm addicted or other people are. A lot of us have managed to, and this is the thing I love about the Flying Solo community, is that a lot of us got out of big business and we got out of other things so that we could have a lifestyle business so that we could work from home, so that we could make the decisions about who we say yes to and who we say no to. And because of that lifestyle choice, I think we're more than halfway there already. Yep. I, I feel like the community we're talking to and part of is, you know, is probably already aware of that addiction hmm. and the effect that, you know, getting up and putting on a suit and going off and chasing, every, you know, like everybody else is chasing – we're kind of halfway out of that program already. Yeah, look, I think I oh, look. I, I totally agree with that, and I and I think you're right. And I I, I know that it's um it still can be an issue, and I still find myself I I get rattled occasionally. I go to a dinner party, and I'm maybe there's you know half a dozen people around the table, and um you know usually it's, it's the guys that um can sometimes get under my skin. They're in corporate jobs, and they've maybe got much greater sort of revenue than I've got. And 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 I will sit there as as the uh, you know the 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 small home based business guy, and um, and nine times out of ten I'm a hundred percent fine with it. But occasionally it's, well, it's kind of get to me because it's you know you hear of these um, all these wonderful things that you get as part of your package in the corporate, which you know I ran away from just the same way that you did. Yeah. But it's it, there's still a perception out there, and it, it is changing. It's changed a lot. It's certainly changed in the in the sort of twenty or so years that. I've run my own business. I've certainly seen a great change. That there's still occasion people going, oh, and you run a little business too from home, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know and um, 
it, it's it just it, it's annoying. Um, it's a shame that sometimes this is. Well, this is all my stuff coming out now, isn't it? It's a shame that um, sometimes as kind of solo home businesses, we can't walk out with, maybe we can, with a T-shirt on that says, yes, I work from home. I love it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't work as necessarily as much as you. I get to make all my own decisions. I, If I feel like I want to go and walk for an hour as part of my work, I will do that. Um, but it's it when you're in those situations sometimes, I guess it's that little... Um, the little monkey mind they talk about isn't it that kind of mm. comes in and it's often seems to me that it's money that's that's opening the door and letting the little monkey in <laughs> yeah yeah and it's that comparative behavior of um, well how much do you earn and where do mm. you live and what suburb are you in and what do you drive and all those sort of comparative things that we do to each other that that kind of dehumanize the people and we're now in that category of people that get looked down upon mm. and, and they forget our names and they forget our uh, – now, I, I do want to say, though, uh, I've had a really refreshing uh, experience recently. I'm, I'm writing a new book and um, as part of the research, I've, I've wanted to talk to the scientists mm. whose research I'm relying on. Uh, and I and these guys are kind of st- you stratospheric people that you, I couldn't get access to, and I thought there is just there is no way one of them's a, a you know a Nobel Prize winner. You know, for mm. goodness sake, how am I ever going to contact these people? I have to say, I'm up to chapter thirteen, and that means I've contacted twelve scientists, and Fantastic. eleven of them, eleven of them have said yes. So mm. they've they've um, dialogued with me. They've they've read the chapter that I wrote that relied on their science. I. I have just been refreshingly, mm. and I don't know what it is perhaps about the research community or the academic community, or what do these people have in common, but but for the most part, they um, are, are accept, you know, acceptable, accessible. Mm. Well, I guess, been, you know, I guess yeah. what you're doing is you are metaphorically standing in front of their car and they're stopping. Yeah, you know, and um, look, I suppose also if you get an email from a guy that says, "Hey, I'm, I'm not that you would, but you know, you're, I trained as an accountant. I'm now studying neuroscience." It's like, okay, I've got to meet this guy. But um, no, no, I'm sure that the, you know the 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 approach that you made obviously is right. But also, uh, it is that thing, surely, isn't it? That you're these are people that are um, not driving the Lamborghinis around you know California, but are the the considerate people that are being generous and they're saying here's someone who wants to take some of my theories or talk to me about my theories and take them to a newer audience so i mean how much more generous can they be than to to practice that with you than to just practice that yeah exactly and i think you know i want to take a leaf out of their book and be like that for others you know Mm. And and not that i'm famous like them or anything but just to say if somebody needs me if somebody needs some advice let you know let me notice them let me see them and mm. realize they're there a, a bit of a uh, a, wa- a watch out uh, is the community that we live in and maybe that's why I, I was thinking about you know what is it about academic life or universities or something mm. although i'm sure you're right about the approach um uh, this researcher um i think it was from ucsf again in california took herself off to Mexico, uh, and and um, I don't know whether she moved there or just went there once a year for 40 years to watch a community grow and prosper as they were affected by the American economy. 
And um, she, not, you know, she watched everybody in this little community sort of grow up together and have kids and have grandkids and so forth. And what she noticed was that the the more Americanized they became, or the more wealthy they became, the you know the house, the car, the food, uh, and the more they rose up to this kind of status that we're used to living in, the less Mexican they were, and the less. Hmm. Pl- plugged into their own communities they were and it, it was kind of as she wrote the whole project up and and um i think the point of her thing was you know they're all becoming less generous but the the other observation was they kind of left the orbit of their culture <laughs> which which may be okay maybe getting rich and becoming american is great but i think what is what is it about the environment that I swim around in? What is it about the families that I associate with and the company I keep? Are they behaving in the way that I would want to model for myself and my children? Hmm. Um, because it's it's kind of like the fish swimming around in the water. It's hard to notice the water. But what Patricia Greenfield did when she looked at that is she kept dropping into this community and she could see the change. <laughs> and, and in her opinion, it was bad change. Hmm. Uh, but it kind of just highlighted to me again, you know, I'm I'm not. I don't live the way my parents did, uh, and they don't live the way their parents lived. So we don't stay the same. No. And we progress and grow, grow. So, again, back to that accountability question would be, does anybody have permission to notice the changes that are going on in our lives? Does anybody does our best friend ever call us on our on our behaviour or say you've changed? You know what's going on with you? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. So it's well, it's always good to have that kind of relationship as well. Yeah, and to have that dialogue, I guess. So look, we're sort of getting to the end. I'd, li- I'd like to ask you something else: is if hmm. you've got someone, so perhaps putting your your coaching hat very firmly on. Sure. If you've got someone, and I, I hadn't sort of said in advance, I'll ask you this. So you know, good luck. Um, <laughs> but if somebody you know comes to you and says, "Right, Robert, I definitely do. I've got this stuff. I'm always concerned. I'm always worried about money. It's you know, month in, month out. It's 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 a dominant topic in our household. What can you give me an exercise that I can?" undertake that can start to move me in a different sort of direction are there is there is is there such thing as an exercise that's that a listener can go right okay i'll i'm going to do what robert holmes said i'm going to start doing this and that will start Mm. to shift a bit yeah 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 a great question and you know thanks for asking it uh one of the, uh, how 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 much information in the hypothesis can we have? I'm guessing that this person is struggling with money. It's a topic because they, you know, it's pressure and there's bills falling due and you know whatever. So I'm assuming it's not a good thing, a good pressure that's yeah. Coming. Well, obviously it's not me. It's a, it's my friend. Of, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things I would say to this person is that when you don't have options and you don't have choices you start to really lose hope Hmm. it's a struggle and and when hope is lost um, depression can come arguments relational struggle so that so the kind of um, fix everything solution is we need we need to find options we need to find alternatives and choice so very often we worry instead of making a plan 
Yep. So very often we argue instead of finding what our options are. And I'd just sit down at the dining room table and say, well, what are my choices here? Mm. Like, And from the most extreme, like, you know, break up the family and sell the house to the least extreme, uh, find another job, you know, it's a pity this isn't working out. I think I'll have to go, you know, go back into the mainstream for a while, whatever. Yep. So let, let's have a look at all of our alternatives, even the, you know, from the most ludicrous to the least uh, ludicrous. Yeah, that's, that's great. So what you're saying, and I'm just, just going to put this into a, a clear action that someone can take then, it's almost like a sheet of paper with a line down the middle. You know, yep. one bit is, is kind of what, what do I believe or what's going on on the other side? What are my options? So start, because yes. I'm thinking for people working by themselves particularly, that yep. this can be quite a good process, can't it, to write stuff down and go, okay, this is what I believe. And on the other side, what are my options? And the thing is, I guess you would, I'm sure, confirm this, and I, and I know I certainly would from um, work that I've done with people, is there are always options. And yes. I, I remember one of, the, um, one of the classic things I was taught in my, um, in my coach training all those years ago was, uh, which I still use, I use it on my son a great deal to, you know, <laughs> so much that it annoys him, where he will, <laughs> his answer to a question like, you know, what are your options? It might be, I haven't, I've got no idea. And so I'll do a lovely coaching question, which is, well, if you did have an idea, what would it, <laughs> what would it be? And I'm sure yes. the next time I ask, he's going to thump me. But it's so interesting when you just rephrase something like that. If you did have an idea, what would it be? And lo and behold, an idea comes up. And it's like, no. okay, well, you know, it, it's just, we can always answer questions. We just have to ask ourselves the questions, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is once you've done that uh, exercise by yourself, if you have a partner or a child or a friend, show that to them and, and kind of brainstorm with them mm. if they could think of any other ideas and, and don't let any option be written off. Just just be as silly as you can possibly be. I mean, uh, I can't get any money. Yes, you can sell a kidney. Mm. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, yeah, just to be silly. Do whatever you think of all your options because as soon as you start down that track, your brain is going to switch over into a new, oh, we're being creative. Okay, let's, mm. let's go to town on this. Um, another thing I would say is go for a walk because yep. when you go for a walk, endorphins are really good. Uh, sorry to get a tiny bit te technical, but mm -hmm. go for a walk because endorphins help set off a thing called gamma wave thinking. So gamma waves are in the brain. EEGs will pick them up. And, and gamma waves are particularly good at disparate thinking. They're particularly good at helping you join options that you've never seen connections between before. So... You know, go go for a walk for half an hour and, and really get your heart moving and then come back and have another go at the, the exercise. And I think you'll find something might pop. Yeah, fantastic. Look, Robert, it's been terrific talking to you. I know this, this is, a, this is a, a big topic and I think you've um, done a great deal here to help. And, I, and thank you for all the research work that you've clearly put into this. I know you're um, working on, a, on an article to kind of support this, which I, fingers crossed, um, we might have the, um, the the good fortune to publish on Flying Seller in the future. Um, in the interim, for people that would like to find out more about your your work, to read your blog and follow your podcast, the place to go is FraserHomes.com. That's Fraser, F-R-A-Z-E-R, and Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S. So FraserHolmes.com. So again, it's been wonderful having you. I'd like to end up, actually, I've got a list of questions, a final list of questions here. Don't worry, okay. you, you haven't got to choose one. Um, 
1 to 20. I can see them, you can't. I would just like you to pick any number between 1 and 20, and I'm going to throw that question at you. 18. Oh, oh beautiful. <laughs> really? No. Yeah. Okay. What's one thing about you that few people know? Hello. Great. Yeah, yeah, I'm there. I'm there. I'm, I'm thinking, wow, so many things people don't know. <laughs> oh, no, let's have one juicy thing. Come on, it's only, it's only you and me. No one else is listening. What's one thing about you that few people know? I started my career in the hotel industry, and my favorite part in, in six years in that industry was learning how to uh, be a chef and, and to cook. And I've carried those learnings with me. Uh, all my days how fabulous that's mm. great there you go i was just thinking earlier about your children well sitting in the back of your car they've got a father who started life as a chef who then trained to be an accountant and is now working in the field of neuroscience <laughs> oh, must be very confusing being your child <laughs> it makes for <laughs> makes for great dessert conversation well, yeah i guess at least when you say what, what you know any thoughts about what you might do for a living is you know you've got no right to complain whatever they say are they? <laughs> not, right. not that any of us ever have alright well look Robert again thank you Robert Holmes thank you so much for joining us it's been great to have you here and uh, must have you back sometime and enjoy the rest of your day thank you wonderful thanks for having me Robert thanks and that's where we'll leave this show from Flying Solo and your host Robert Gerrish we'd love to receive feedback even a brief review for those listening via iTunes if you're planning to start a business or rejuvenate the one you're in, check out our bestseller, Flying Solo, How to Go It Alone in Business. It includes everything we know about working on your own. And of course, we invite you to dive into the resources and supportive community at flyingsolo.com.au. 